mission and M.O. in the world was so fully distilled in the person of Jesus. In a word, to know God's mission, we have to know God's Son. And so we come to church asking, who is this God that we are worshiping? And as soon as we ask that question, we are led to Jesus. And so then we ask, who is this man, this God-man, who we are trying to follow? Who is this Jesus? The Christian tradition makes a pretty bold claim that when we read the story of Jesus, we find the story of who God is, what God is like. As one missionary to Africa put it, God is Christ-like. In him, there is no unchristlikeness at all. Which is a way of saying that Jesus is a window into the very heart of God. But Christians also claim that Jesus offers a picture of what a truly human life can be. Jesus is fully human. That's what the early creeds confess. And his story is, in some ways, the story of the most human life that has ever been lived. And so what do we mean by the word God? Look to Jesus, Christians say. What does it mean to be human? Look to Jesus. As Rowan Williams, a theologian, puts it, when we read the story of Jesus, a very human story of a skilled worker from a backwater town, maybe like a car mechanic from the Yukon, who got dirt under his fingernails, who felt hungry and thirsty, slept and woke and died. When we read that story, we are reading the story of God's work among us because this life changes what is possible for human beings and demonstrates once and for all who God is, what God wants, and what God is doing. So this morning, I thought we'd take a look at one part of Jesus' story and teaching and remind ourselves of who this God is and what it's possible for us to become and what it means to follow God into God's mission in the world. We're going to reflect together on one part of Jesus' story that doesn't always get highlighted in North American churches. So this morning, we'll think together. I want to think together about Jesus and his sort of unique version of family values. Now, on first glance, this morning's readings from Mark and Matthew might put a bit of a damper on our preparations for family holidays this summer or for some trips that we might be planning before the school year ends at the end of June, those trips that we can just start to see in the distance as school is wrapping up. Who wants to hear that Jesus' kingdom will turn a man against his father or a daughter against her mother before they start booking campsites or planning time off with their family. And depending on where our faith was nurtured, Jesus' words may be even harder to swallow for us. If we've turned on our radio or our TV and seen teachers using Jesus' words to give relevant Christian advice to preserve the home and help families thrive, as one organization puts it, Or North American politicians on the left and on the right who appeal to one version or another, especially our neighbors to the south, 
appeal to one version of Christian family values or another to prop up their political campaigns. Or uh, pastors at a church that I uh, visit through my work with guys leaving prison in Edmonton that I've been to several times. They begin their service every morning by asking whether there's been any engagements or babies or marriages recently, as if the news of marriage and kids is the only good news in a congregation that might be worth sharing. Although it is good news, obviously. Those folks may not want to hear that the family values that we draw from the Bible are not always that easy to find in Jesus' words and teaching, as we might see from this morning's readings. John Bell, the hymn writer and teacher, he tells the story of an exercise that he held at a conference in Scotland, where he's from. So he divided everyone into three groups and gave them a Bible and sent them to do a little research on Jesus and Jesus' version of family values. So the first group went to look for examples of good family values among the patriarchs and heroes of Jesus' Jewish ancestry. What did they find? Well, there was Abraham, who passed his wife off as his sister to save his own hide, and Abraham's grandson Jacob, who did the same thing, but only after duping his brother and father into giving him the family inheritance. And a long time after those patriarchs, there was David, of course, who committed adultery with the wife of a loyal soldier and then schemed to have that soldier killed in battle. And let's not get started on Solomon. I wonder what some good advice, some good family advice would have looked like for those folks. Of course, there's better examples of family life in Jesus' ancestry. Those are just a few. There's better, good, positive examples, but they seem to be the happy exceptions rather than the rule in Jesus' ancestry. So that was group one. The second group went to look at the relationship Jesus had with his own family, as recorded in the Gospels, to see what good family values they could find. But they didn't find much help there either. Jesus' life began with an unwed girl becoming pregnant and her fiancé, who, after learning she was pregnant, was ready to turn and run. At a wedding in Cana, Jesus' mother Mary asks Jesus to do something about the short supply of wine with his supernatural powers. And Jesus responds with the phrase, Woman, why do you involve me? And many scholars believe that we should actually imagine Jesus saying this with his eyes rolling and sort of his hands in the air, saying sort of rudely to his mother, Seriously, why are you looking at me like that? And then, of course, there's the famous passage that we read uh, this morning, Jesus' family asked to see him outside of a crowded home. Jesus turns to that crowd and says, Who are my brothers and sisters? Not those folks waiting for me outside, but those who do God's will. Ouch. The third group in John Bell's little experiment looked at Jesus' own words about the family. But as the passage we read this morning shows, Jesus' direct teaching about family is hardly the stuff of a sort of feel-good family sitcom. So it's hard for us not to come to the same conclusion as those who participated in John Bell's little experiment at this workshop, that Jesus' version of family values 
is a bit different than the one we might find in our churches or in the wider culture. Of course, that's not to say that Jesus encourages his disciples to sort of throw out the commandment to honor their mother and father or to stop caring for families altogether. That's not true at all. Jesus insists that not a jot or a tittle, not an apostrophe or a silent E would pass from the law. In fact, Jesus says he had come to fulfill the law, including laws about family life. And Jesus actually shows deep respect for the commandment to honor your father and mother in his conversations with the rich young ruler and with the teachers in the synagogue. And Jesus, Jesus' disciples, and the early church, beginning with the Apostle Paul, they regularly stayed with families, sort of indirectly affirming one of the great virtues of family life, I think, which is hospitality and welcome. So what is going on in the passages we read this morning? There are a couple of things, I think. First, the harsh words of Jesus. Words like, If anyone comes to me and does not hate their mother and father, wife and children. These words must be heard in the light of Jesus' invitation to follow him into God's coming kingdom of newness and the inevitable tension that will come from marching to a different drumbeat, a beat that not everyone around us may hear. Jesus knew this firsthand. Just before the passage from Mark that we read, we find Jesus entering a house with his disciples, and the house fills up immediately, crowded with all those who wanted to get near to this mysterious man, Jesus, to catch a glimpse of this healer and teacher. Jesus' family hears about it and comes to knock some sense into Jesus. He's out of his mind, his family says in Mark 3, verse 21. And Jesus responds to them by insisting that he is up to something that will only make sense in the light of God's kingdom. It's only after that exchange with his family that Jesus says to those around him, Who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do God's will. That's who. Those who are joining me on this kingdom journey, Jesus says. So that's the first thing that Jesus is on about in this seemingly strange, his seemingly strange family values and his harsh words about family. He's inviting us to follow him into a new kingdom that is breaking in, a new world order. And we won't be able to say that we weren't warned beforehand that it's not always going to be easy, even or especially for those closest to us. But second, there's something else going on with Jesus' teachings on family, I think. Jesus lived and taught in a time where poverty and disease were common among the old and the young, as the early death of Lazarus in the Gospels and the healing of Jairus' daughter and the centurion's young servant show. The majority of people in Jesus' world would not live to see the age of 40, and many died in their teenage years, which meant, which meant that there were many communities where there were children with no parents to provide stability and economic security, parents with no children to care for them as they aged, and no partners to provide friendship. 
So it was into that situation of pain and vulnerability that Jesus initiated a new community of belonging. Jesus insists in Mark 3 that those who do God's will are his family. Jesus teaches his followers to pray, Our Father, Our Father, common, hinting at a new family not based on blood, but on our response to God's claim on us. And at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus says to Mary after his resurrection, I am going to my Father and to your Father. Again, this common Our Father. Jesus initiates a new family, just as he invites us into a new kingdom. Those who are allied to Jesus, signified in our baptism, they don't just enter into a personal relationship with Jesus, which they do, but they also enter into a new family, into new family relationships with everyone else gathered into his name, into his church. That's good news, I think, in Jesus' time, where there were so many who were vulnerable and needed the stability and safety of a family. And it's good news in our time as well, I think. When I lived in Vancouver, I was part of a community called Jacob's Well, which sort of befriended folks on the margins in the inner city there. And one thing that Jacob's Well would do is we would visit folks in the many sort of run-down rooming houses in the neighborhood. Uh, We would bring food baskets and just spend an afternoon sipping coffee with folks who were shut in in these uh, sort of marginal rooming houses that were not kept up very well. And one of the people that the Jacob's Well community befriended was an older man who had immigrated on his own uh, from Eastern Europe several, several decades before. And through a sort of long and complicated journey, he ended up in Vancouver's inner city where he lived alone in one of these rooming houses. Uh, Not long after we befriended him, he became sick and ended up dying alone in the hospital, visited only by his new Jacob's Well community. The doctor took our friend Helen aside after he had died and told her something that I've always sort of remembered, that's always uh, stuck with me. The doctor told our friend Helen that this friend who had passed away died not from medical complications and not from old age or natural causes. He told us that he died from loneliness, that this man had died from loneliness. And after spending time in Canada's prisons and in Edmonton's inner city, I have a strong hunch that this man is not the only one who has died or is dying from loneliness in our communities. So Jesus' news of a new family, a kingdom family of hope and belonging, that's as important now, I think, as it ever was, and maybe even more. Now, did Jesus initiate this new family of baptism, this new kingdom family, just to address the social ills, the social um, issues of his time? I don't think so. I think there are also deeper reasons to join this new community of the baptized. For one, I think our families alone can never do everything that we need them to do or be. So maybe Jesus knew that everyone needs other voices in their lives, other forms of friendship and mentoring 
and welcome. So to use that sort of tired out cliche, it really does take a village to raise a child. And maybe Jesus also knew that the sort of traditional mom, dad, and two and a half kids sort of family is not mandatory or even possible for everybody. So husbands and wives who cannot have children for one reason or another. Folks who choose to remain uh, single, which was a choice that both Jesus and Paul affirmed. Or like the many men and women that I meet in my work at the Mustard Seed, those leaving prison whose parents were so abusive that any sort of intimacy just seems unthinkable for them. There are so many folks who do not fit into the sort of typical idea of family life that's on offer in many of our communities. And that's just fine, I think, because those who belong to Jesus also belong to each other. There's another deeper family for them. As John Bell puts it, Jesus invites people into a larger family which is defined by commitment to the kingdom of God. This new family of belonging that Jesus initiates, it's the kind of belonging that we see in African churches today, I think, where elderly women take in boys and girls who've been orphaned by HIV-AIDS and care for them as if they were their own. It's the kind of belonging that we see when people like Spencer Perkins, who's a black man from Alabama, and Chris Rice, a white man from the other side of the tracks in the same town, who insisted that the bonds of their baptisms were stronger than the racial boundaries that separated them. And so they moved their families together into one house as a sort of living witness to God's new family. I think it's the kind of belonging that I get to see every now and then at the mustard seed when folks offer former inmates a second chance and then welcome them to their dinner table. It's the kind of belonging we sometimes see all too rarely in our churches, but when we do see it, when we do see it, we know we are seeing a glimpse of God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So I hope this morning's scripture readings didn't damper our moods for Sunday family dinner or for our family vacations. Quite the opposite, actually. I hope Jesus' words can remind us that we follow a Jesus who invites us into a new family, a family defined by commitment to God's kingdom, a family in which the water of baptism really is thicker than blood, And I hope that our own life with our own families can be a sort of symbol, as Wayne actually talked about in the children's message, a symbol of what kingdom family of love and care and welcome can be. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.